Good morning, Providence. My name is Gabe. Um, I, uh, I'm the music director here, amongst other things. Um, but today I get to preach and bring God's word to you, and I'm really excited about it. And beyond that, what I'm more excited about is today starts our season in the church calendar called Advent. It's a season in which we look um, at Christ coming the first time to save us from our sin, and we look forward to Christ coming again to rule and reign on the earth. Advent, it's, it's a funny word, but in short, it means the anticipated arrival. So you could say um, that you would anticipate the arrival of a package you've ordered on the internet. You could say that. That'd be fair. Or negatively put, you could say that you're anticipating the arrival of your mother-in-law's fruitcake, just as we anticipate the arrival of God's judgment on the earth. But, and my mother-in-law's here in the back, and I don't mean any offense to her, And she's never made fruitcake, so thank you very much. It simply means the anticipated arrival. And as we go through the next few weeks, we're going to talk about these four historic themes of hope, peace, love. uh, Yeah, hope, peace, joy, and love is the pink candle. For the Christian, hope is more than a wish or a good thought. For the Christian, hope is the certainty that God will do what he says he's going to do. When we say the word hope, we don't, we don't mean that we hope, we wish, or we, we think good on, but we, we have an expectant certainty that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. And today, in particular, we're going to look at what God says to his people in 586 B.C., and we're going to look at what God promises to us in 2017 A.D., And my hope is that the word of God will show us what true hope is, what true expectant certainty is, and where it is found. It's found in a comfort that transforms us, a word that is eternal and a person worth proclaiming. Imagine with me, family, if we didn't, we didn't have to move our hope every year, every six months from person to person or job to job or joy to joy or diet to diet. Imagine if you could place your hope in one person and his promise to us. Wouldn't you like that? A world full of many hopes, a world filled with pyramid scheme on top of pyramid scheme of hope. We believe that there's only one true hope and that his name is Jesus. And so the big idea of where we're going today is that because God is the one that we trust in and based on his eternal word, we can live a life full of hope in him. And in his promises. And so four points for us today. It'll go like this. A comfort, comma, that transforms us. Point three, a word that is eternal. And point four, a person worth proclaiming. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. Um, If you don't take notes, that's totally cool. A comfort that transforms us. Point one, a comfort that transforms us. Would you read again with me Isaiah 41 through 2? It says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly toward Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The comfort, can you feel it? This verse is very therapeutic. It's like balm on a burnt finger. But this comfort goes much, much deeper. You see, to this point, Israel, the people of God, have done nothing to warrant God's comfort. They've done nothing to earn God's comfort, nothing at all. And in fact, they have done the opposite. They have run away from God. 
God said, you shall, you shall have no idols before me. And they went and made idols. God said, trust in me. And they put their trust in their kings. God said, worship me. And they did not. And now the result of their running from God has made them slaves to another kingdom called Babylon. At this point, it would be logical to assume that God has left them all together, that they're on their own. Or, as the God of the Old Testament is portrayed in pop culture, um, that he is distant and cruel and judgmental. But here in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the first thing God says to his people in exile who've been taken over is comfort, comfort. And maybe you can relate to how Israel's messed up this relationship with God. Have you ever messed up a relationship with a friend or family member? Have you ever messed up a relationship and hurt them in a way that seems irreparable? When I was in college, my first act as an adult was to move out of my parents' house, which landed me in a load of trouble, but those are stories for a different day. But above all those stories, there's one story that stands above them all. One decision I made that stands above them all. My dad was a military man. He served for 30 years in the United States Navy. Um, And as I was transitioning to adulthood, he was transitioning into retirement. 30 years in the Navy. And not only did he serve 30 years, he accomplished as much as he could. He climbed to the top of the ladder he was on. He'd made it. And as you do when you retire, you throw some sort of party. But if you're in the military, that party is called a ceremony. And there are flags and guns and speeches and perfectly pressed suits and all sorts of um, formalities. In short, it was a big, big deal. Well, at least it should have been. Uh, In my stupidity and rebellion, I made the conscious decision not to go and instead to go to China with Jared Cleaver and this guy over here. to take a trip to China during my dad's retirement. 30 years of service, my father, the master chief, that's that's his official title, the master chief, me not going to his retirement. Can you picture the relational damage that would ensue? And it did, we had it out. We had many hard words towards each other. But later in life, we made amends. And the comfort of my dad saying, I forgive you, that was rude and insensitive, but I forgive you. Oh, the comfort of that. Have you ever felt that? Messed up a relationship and then hearing the comforting words from the person you've offended saying, I forgive you. So it is with God and his people. That moment over and over. Israel was not walking but running away from God. And here's what he says. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her. Her warfare is ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. People often characterize the God of the Old Testament as distant and cruel. But when you read verses like this, it just doesn't seem true. All those caricatures fade away. He says, comfort, comfort. Speak tenderly. Your iniquity is pardoned. Your warfare is over. But the truth is, God doesn't just say that to Israel. He says that to us. And he accomplishes that for us in Jesus. God doesn't just say this to Israel. He says that to us. Although we have failed God, he still says comfort. Although we have not worshipped him as he deserves, he still says comfort. And while we were in the furthest pit of our sin, climbing out, or at least trying to climb out to get to some God, not even the God, he says Comfort, your sins are forgiven. 
Today, God isn't frowning over you. He's smiling, saying comfort. So today, could we rest in God's comfort? He is not far off. He's closer than your skin, saying your sin is forgiven. Do you see the hope we have in a God who isn't out to get us, but is indeed for us? Bringing comfort to a rebellious people like Israel and like me and like you. Our certain expectation, our hope is that God will always comfort us. So that's point one, a comfort. And point two is a comfort that transforms us. Would you read with me verses two through five? It says this, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Beyond comfort, God promises Israel double for all her sins. And what he's saying here isn't a double jeopardy or a double punishment for all the people's sins. No, what God is saying is actually they'll receive a double benefit to their sins. Not because of anything they've done. Remember, they did nothing but run away from God. But they will receive a double of God's favor because God has done it for them. Now, that double favor, the double cure is this, that God in his presence would be with his people and by relation their sin would be wiped clean and that he will make them like him that he will reconstruct their lives. Here, Israel would have expected God to send another king, just like the last one and the one before that and the one before that. But what God says through Isaiah is that God himself is gonna come, that the Lord himself in all his glory is coming. Prepare the way. And then it jumps to this language. It says, every valley shall be lifted up. The uneven ground shall become level. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Why? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. God himself has spoken it. What God is saying through Isaiah, the prophet, is that the people will see God's glory because God has made all the rough places plain, all the tall places low, and all the low places now if you're an outdoors man or woman you just shed a little tear right i like to go to the mountains mountains are great but if you take that literally it says goodbye rocky mountains hello nebraska forever (laughs) right that's not a world i want to live in but let me assure you that god is not talking about the physical geography of the people he's talking about the spiritual topography, the spiritual landscape of his people, setting that right. In 1776, a man named Augustus Toplady was hiding in a rock off the cliffs of Dover in England, weathering out a storm when he penned the words to this hymn called Rock of Ages. Maybe you've heard it. If you have, would you sing along with me? It goes like this. Rock of Ages, clap for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flow 
be of sin the double cure save from wrath and make me pure do you see that the double cure saved from wrath being made pure like jesus no clear of a lyric has been written on the double cure and now the the comfort and the double cure are quite different than what we might assume um, compared to our american midwestern comfort Right, So we think of comfort in America, we think of all the nice things, or rather the replacement of all the old not nice things with new not nice things, right? Replacing things or people that will change our circumstances and make us comfortable, right? So if you have a bed that you don't like, you go and get a new bed, and then you have comfort. Or you have a TV that's just a little bit too small, you go and get a bigger TV and you get comfort. Or you have a spouse that you don't like and you go and get a new spouse, right? And that is comfort. The primary pursuit of American comfort is changing our circumstances to make us more comfortable, which is in direct competition with the comfort that God wants to provide for us. God doesn't want to change our circumstances. He wants to change us. God does not want to change our circumstances. He wants to change us. He wants us to be free from sin, but he also wants to change us. He wants to. He doesn't have to. He doesn't need to, although we need him to. He wants to change us. He wants to make us like him. And why is that? So that we can see his glory. So that we can see the world as it was meant to be. God has come in the person of Jesus. Look at how John 1 describes Jesus when he comes in the flesh. John 1.14, it says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came in the glory of the Father to dwell with us, redeem us, and make us pure like him. Maybe today you're in a depression. You're in the valley God promises to make you tall again. Or maybe you're wrongfully proud and your life, you think, has been built up by your own hands. He promises to make you low. Or maybe you're on unlevel ground. You weigh in and out of faith in God. Doubt and belief strike you at night. He promises to make your world level. Or maybe life's just been plain rough and you've grown cold and calloused. God promises to make you a fertile plain so that he can plant his seed inside of you and that fruit might grow out from it. We can be certain of this. God has said it and God cannot and will not ever go back on his covenant, his promise. True hope is found in a comfort that transforms us. Today, would Jesus be our double cure, saving us from wrath and making us pure like him? So point to you, a comfort that doesn't just save us, a comfort that transforms us. As we move on to point three, a word that is eternal, you're probably wanting to know, you're probably asking the question in your hand, will God do what he says he's going to do? Can he do what he says he's going to do? How do I know that this will come to pass? And Israel had the same question. They wanted to know, they wanted to know how they could trust in this. And to them, God wrote this, verses six through eight. A voice says, cry, and I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, 
and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely all flesh is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Israel had many kings who promised to do many things, and every single one of them let them down. Just before this section, there's a king named Hezekiah, who God said, go and tell Hezekiah, he said this to Isaiah, go and tell Hezekiah, if you don't repent and turn and worship God, Babylon is going to take over your people. Hezekiah, if you don't worship God, Babylon is going to take over your people. And you know what Hezekiah's response is? Verbatim, this is what it says. You can look at it just above there. It says, the word that the Lord has spoken through you is good. He doesn't even try. He just goes off and dies in his comfort, leaving his people to deal with their own mess. Ultimately, what God is telling the people, his people, is that they're unreliable. Their kings are unreliable. But the promise of God, his word, is infallible. Look at scripture again. Verse 6. All flesh is grass and its beauty is like the flower of the field. That's a really nice thought that would probably fit up on my grandmother's mantle with verse 8. All flesh is grass. Its beauty is like the flower of the field. But then you go on to verse 7 and it gets a little more off center. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord breathes on it. And you know, I guess that's true, right? Like, we're not going to look this good forever. So um, that's probably true. But then you get to the second half of verse 7 and it says, Surely all the people are grass. There's no sidestepping this one. Are you and I a person? Can you answer that question? Yes, we are a person. And because you answered that question, even if you said no, that means you are a person because you answered it. Then we are grass, it says. That's the harsh truth. But the hope comes in verse 8. It says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thursday before all the Thanksgiving festivities We celebrated my wife's birthday, which uh, consequently actually landed on Thanksgiving. So there wasn't too many celebrations except the one little celebration that we had when we went to the movies. Um, And we went and saw the latest Pixar release called Coco. Have you heard of this movie? Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. I really like it. Pixar has a way of making grown men cry tears of joy. Not that I was crying, but there were some other men in the theater crying. 10 out of 10, would see again. I promise not to spoil anything. But the premise of the movie is this. A boy named Miguel living in a Mexican village on the Mexican holiday, Dia de Muertos, the Day of the Dead, gets transported to the land of the dead. He gets trapped there. And whilst he's in the land of the dead, he discovers a shocking truth that the rituals his family has been participating in in the land of the living have dire consequences on those in the land of the dead. Traditionally, to remember and honor your deceased family in Mexican Hispanic culture, you set up an ofrenda or an altar celebrating them. You put their picture on it and some of their favorite things and remember the life they lived and give thanks for it. What Miguel discovers is that if you don't get an ofrenda and if you're not remembered as a deceased family member, eventually you will die what is called a second death. So the the progression goes like this. You die once, and then you are remembered, 
And when you are forgotten, when that last thought of you is gone, you die a second death. I love it when the world tells the truth about itself. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's beautiful to remember our ancestors. And I think it's good to remember the people God has given us in the world who've done many great things, all the clever humans who have done very good things. But the truth is, just like Coco gets it, eventually all of it will be forgotten. Eventually all of us will be forgotten. All of our accomplishments, all of our relationships will fade away. Eventually Providence Church will be forgotten, hopefully later than sooner. And to be honest, I don't remember my great-grandfather. I don't remember my great-great-grandfather. But that doesn't matter. The word of our God will stand forever. God's word will stand forever. And maybe you've been living your life defined by the impact you'll have on the world or your community or even your family. It's not the point. Even in those times while we're living, we're inconsistent and unreliable. What Isaiah is saying here is of infinite worth to how we live now. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. God is the eternal one, and his word stands forever. And his word has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. John 1.14, again, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's talking about Jesus. The promises of God all hinge on his word. That's why Christianity is not about what we can do, but what God has done for us. Christianity at the core is not a set of challenges to live up to. It's a set of assurances purchased by God, done by God for us. Even now, looking back on God's promise to Israel that he would reveal his glory, he did just that in Jesus' first coming, his first advent. And you know what? He, he promises to do it again. Look at Matthew 24, 30. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Again, Acts 1, 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand staring at the sky? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in a like manner in which you saw him go into heaven. God promises it. God has promised us that Christ will come again and that he will set the world right. So my question to us is, do we believe that God has the power to do it? Do we believe that Jesus can do that? When the flowers are fading and the world is growing gray, we can rest that the word of our God, Jesus, will stand forever. And that he will restore all color back into a fading creation. That is the certainty we have. That is the hope we have and rest in. That God is eternal and his word, Jesus, will stand forever. So point three, a word that is eternal. Point four, a person worth proclaiming. I love this verse so much. It says this. Go on up to a high mountain. Not a low mountain, a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. 
He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. God in all of his glory has promised a comfort to Israel. He's reminded them of who he is and here he shepherds their joy. He says, go up, climb up, go up to the most unsafe places and raise your voice. Oh, Jerusalem, lift it up, fear not. And what does he call them to shout? Behold your God. Tell them that he comes with might. Tell them that he brings reward. Tell them he will tend his flock. Tell them he will gather the lambs. Tell them he will carry them. Tell them he will lead them gently. And tell them, behold, your God. What God is saying through Isaiah to his people, the people of Israel, is that all of man's happiness and joy and hope and longing have no answer apart from the presence of God. And he says, you, Israel, you've seen that God. Now go and tell. C.S. Lewis explains it like this. And I th- this is, um, I'll try to get through this in a couple breaths. This is really good. It says, the world sings with praise. Lovers praise their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers praise the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. There's praise of weather, wine, and dishes. Actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. Just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join with them in praising it with questions like, isn't she lovely? Or wasn't that glorious? Or don't you think that was marvelous? I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation, end quote. God's goal for Israel is not that they would merely enjoy the comfort and the double cure provided for them, but that they would increase their joy by proclaiming this promise to the whole world. And so it is true with us. For the Christian, we believe that ultimate hope and comfort and joy are found when God is seen and his presence is known. So let me ask you the question. Let me ask us the question. Is our joy complete? Has the comfort of God gripped our hearts enough to lead to this sort of spontaneous praising? Has the comfort of God gripped our heart enough so much that we can't help but spontaneously urge mankind to join in the praises of God? What does this even look like, right? So by way of application, here are two thoughts I had for us this Advent season on how we can proclaim God, how we can lift up our voice and say, behold your God. Number one, be in the flesh like Jesus did. Don't move away from people, move toward people. As it gets colder, I find it harder to interact with people outside my immediate social circle and my immediate family. And our American holiday calendar doesn't really help that all too much, but in fact promotes exclusivity rather than inclusivity. Have you heard phrases like this? The holidays are for family. Or if you're a millennial living away from your family, the holidays are for friends who are also living away from their family. Friends, givings, and such. But Jesus comes and turns this on its head. 
He says, the holidays are for enemies. The holidays are for the people that turned away from me. So let me ask Providence, how might we invite unlikely people into our lives this season? How might we invite unlikely people into our life this season? And secondly, as my wife likes to say to me, use your words. The word of God is eternal. Don't be scared to say what God says with tact, naturally. No need to be a bull in a china shop. But say his words like a, like a, like a surgeon in the ER. Where else can people go to find the words of eternal life besides Christ and his Christians? Where else can they go? It says, behold your God, not behold our God, as if, as if this was exclusively just for those who already believe. No, he is the God of the whole world, the God of all people, and he wants all of mankind to know Jesus. And God wants to use us to speak that truth. So do so. Use your words. Don't shy away from asking the awkward question or giving your take as a person that's been comforted by God. We don't need spin. We need takes on how the world should be from a Christian's perspective. That's how lives are changed, not in solitude, but in conversation. So let me ask the question to us. How might we use our words to proclaim the gospel, the comfort of God this season? The picture in Isaiah here is prophetic in nature. Not only is it a picture of the response of the Christian, it's also a picture when Christ will come again. There's a German philosopher and theologian named Martin Luther who once said, there are only two days in my calendar, this day and that day. It's kind of a joke. This day and that day. You see, Christ promises us his word and work to rest in today, but he also promises that on that day we will behold our God. We will see him in full. We will be with him physically. For the Christian... We will behold him and shout all the louder that our God has come to be with us. He's come. Look, there he is. Do you see him? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he wonderful? True hope, the promise of God, will lead us to conspicuous heights to shout loudly, behold your God. Look at all that he has done for us, the eternal one. Look how he promises to carry us. Look how he promises to return and gather up his people. Would you look? Would you find life? That's what he calls us to. So that's point four, a person worth proclaiming. And in conclusion, I want us to walk away not not just knowing mentally, but knowing in our hearts where true hope is found. Today we have Christ. We have the double cure. His promise to, to spite his wrath and to make us like him. But we also have that day when Jesus will come again to bring full hope to the world, to transform us into his perfect image and to set all that is wrong in the world right. How do we know this? Because God has spoken it. That's true hope. That is lasting hope. We can trust in God based on his eternal word and we can live a life full of hope in God's promises. True hope, lasting hope, is found in a comfort that transforms us in a word that is eternal, and it will lead us to proclaim, behold, your God. Providence, we, we can't miss that this season. We can't, we can't miss it. We can't 
just get caught up in the regular holiday traditions. God has called us to something in this season. He's called us to proclaim his glory and to say, behold, your God. And he'll do that through us. Can I pray for us? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word stands above all other things that people might say to us or about us, God. Your word is the most true thing in all the realms. And so, this season, God, we want, we, want, we want to see more of you. We want to hope in eternal things. Would you help us to set our eyes on the things above? And would you help us to proclaim your glory in all of life? In your holy name, amen.